Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. The following podcast includes explicit language. In other words, might get a little blue in here. Hope you can handle it. Hi, I'm Josh Levine, Slate's national editor, and this is Hang Up and Listen for the week of June 7th, 2021. On this week's show, Sam Anderson will join us to talk about his story in the New York Times Magazine, on the Brooklyn Nets, Kevin Durant, and the asteroid crash that formed Chesapeake Bay, which, trust me, makes more sense in context. We'll also talk about the U.S. men's national team's win over Mexico in the CONCACAF Nations League final and what it portends for U.S. soccer. And finally, we'll have a conversation about the impending retirement of Duke coach Mike Krzyzewski and what we make of Coach K's accomplishments and legacy. I'm in Washington, D.C. I'm the author of The Queen, the host of Slow Burn, season four on David Duke, and the upcoming one year. Going to have to trim those credits down a little bit, but we can work that out in weeks to come. Also in D.C. is Stefan Fatsis, author of the book Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic, many other fine books and articles. Hello, Stefan. Hey, Josh. Hi. Uh, with us from Palo Alto, Slate staff writer, host of Slow Burn Season 3, the upcoming Slow Burn Season 6, and many fine articles, podcasts, and other various and sundry products, Joel Anderson. Hello, Joel. Hey, you're really giving me a lot of credit. I'm only working on one thing that isn't this right now. So You've worked on many things. That's fair. I, mean, I guess I get to carry my you know, my resume with me, my little CV with me. So yeah, sure. And what a thing it is, the thing that you're working on. Let's not, uh, let's not underplay. Yeah, let's interviews, underplay. Are, uh, interviews greatest, are going on right the now. The greatest podcast in history is That's in true. process. That's true. During the regular season, the Brooklyn Nets' big three of Kevin Durant, James Harden, and Kyrie Irving played only around 200 minutes together. Each of those dudes missed a bunch of games due to injuries, and in Kyrie Irving's case, uh, being Kyrie Irving. In the first round of the playoffs against the Celtics, we finally got to see what it looked like when they were all on the court for an extended period of time, and what that looked like was extreme dominance. But then, in the first minute of the Eastern Conference semis against the Milwaukee Bucks, Harden left the floor with a tight hamstring. It was the same one that caused him to miss a bunch of time before the playoffs. But the good thing about having a big three is that three minus one is two, and the Nets beat the Bucks 115-107, even without the beard. Joining us now is Sam Anderson. He's the author of the excellent book, Boomtown, as well as a piece for the New York Times Magazine, headlined Kevin Durant and, parentheses, possibly the greatest basketball team of all time. Sam, welcome. And it's hard to say when things are in parentheses in audio form, so... Um, yeah, yeah, I tried yeah, my yeah. best. Say those parentheses really loud, because um, a lot of people miss them. And uh, obviously, you know, as a writer, I didn't write that headline. I wouldn't have written that headline. But uh, I got a lot of loud sports dudes in my mentions lately arguing that headline. Well, we are quiet sports dudes who will have a nice, polite conversation about your excellent story now beyond the headline. And I wanted to um, start where your piece does. Can you explain why you wanted to tell Kevin Durant about an asteroid 
and how that ended up playing yeah. out. I want the whole scene. Well, first I want your thinking about the asteroid, but then I want you to like describe the whole scene of like Sam Anderson sits down and tells Kevin Durant. So here's what I want to talk to you about today. Okay. Uh, great question. I mean, originally this story was going to be just a big giant cover story about the Brooklyn Nets, the phenomenon of the Brooklyn Nets. And I kind of got into that reporting and you know, all the frustrations of trying to report an NBA story during a pandemic. You can't go in the locker room. You can't get anywhere near the floor. You know, I'm talking to guys on the team for 15 minutes on the phone and that's like the extent of our contact. You just can't really get the color and the, the things I need to write the way I like to write. So eventually I was able to get in touch with Durant through his kind of corporate arm and get some real significant time with him. And so the the focus of the story shifted a bit and I've always wanted to go deep on Kevin Durant. I mean, like, like all of us, I've been thinking about him for 15 years uh, pretty much nonstop and wondering about him. And, and um, I've been around part him. of your book. And oh, yeah. So I've been around him a lot and I've kind of observed him a lot. And um, I've always been really struck by just, I mean, he's a unique human being in a totally bizarre place for that kind of human to be in, in the world of professional sports. So it was kind of a dream come true to have some time to sit down with him. And, and so. In advance of the interview, I had a lot of time to think about how I wanted to approach that. And, you know, he's been profiled really well um, by Zach Barron and GQ a couple of times and other people. And um, so I wanted to get to stuff that hadn't been got to before. And, you know, I really wanted to situate him kind of in American history. Like, like if America is speaking to us through Kevin Durant, what is America telling us? Um and so I started researching pretty deeply the history of the place he grew up, which is which is right outside Washington, D.C., right off the Chesapeake Bay uh, in Maryland, Prince George's County, Maryland. And I just went deep down that rabbit hole and, and read all about Prince George. Like, who the hell was Prince George? Like, this is this <laughs> kind of basketball mecca in Maryland. And, like, Prince George was this this Danish aristocrat who was born in a castle in Copenhagen and never even came to the U.S. And they named this county, you know, in his honor. And it's just like all this bizarre stuff. And to be clear, um, this is this was not in the piece at all. No, no, no. This didn't make it into the piece. There's so much that didn't make it into the piece. I mean, I mean, Maryland is a fascinating place. Um, We're getting the DVD extras now. Yeah, in a million different ways. You know, I could could have gone Civil War history. I could have gone more Frederick Douglass. Like, like so much stuff just kind of got squished into three sentences that could have been, you know, twenty thousand words. Um, and the shorthand for that kind of became for me this asteroid that hit thirty-five million years ago because it was almost like. In a way, it was like um, almost giving the middle finger from me as a writer to the kind of superficial hot take sports media that happens so much around someone like Kevin Durant. Like what's happened with him in the last, you know, two weeks or or six months, if we want to go real deep. Um, and I wanted to say like, no, who is this guy? Like in the context of world and human history, like where did, where does his family come from? And so that ended up, I just, just reading about that region, I discovered this 35 million year old asteroid that I'd never heard of, um, that kind of blasted the East coast and then ended up forming the Chesapeake Bay, what we know as the Chesapeake Bay. And, um, so all, it was almost like a joke, you know, it was like this kind of like, like a joke about going deep on somebody. 
And I thought he had the kind of brain that would appreciate that. And so I threw it out there all just as like a, just as, as like a wild flyer. And if he didn't pick it up, I would have let it go immediately. Um, but, but we sat down in his office and he said, what do you want to talk about? And, uh, in, in a very like open and relaxed way. And I was like, man, I want to talk about everything, like the meaning of life. I want to go deep. And he's like, oh, great. He's like, I don't get to do that very often. Like, let's do it. So I was like, you know, to understand who a person is, we got to go back to where they're from and, and, and how not only where they're from, but how that place became the place it is. And we got to go way back. And like, I was just reading about this asteroid and I started telling him the story and he was like, holy shit, like you're blowing my mind right now. 35 million years. Like, <laughs> and uh, so he was just into it. And that set the tone for our whole conversation. And he said something, I quote him in the piece. He said, like, you saying that you just took me down a deep hole right now. And, uh, so he's always had this instinct to be kind of like this, this like existentialist who thinks about things, you know, like, like, like think about the whole history of humanity. We're so small. He's always saying stuff like that. So I thought there was a chance and, and he picked it up and, you know, I didn't think I would use it in the piece actually, but I ended up starting with it. I found it really interesting that your story dropped the week after everyone had this sort of tangential misguided debate about athlete press obligations, because like, obviously Kevin Durant has his own production company and media ambitions, but he still makes these regular appearances in other media outlets. And so when you talked to him, you said it felt less like an interview than a therapy session or a late night dorm room philosophy, Jack. So like, how much time did you get with him? And you talked about him asking you questions, which is, I mean, all of us are journalists and have been in athlete locker rooms. It's very, very rare, exceedingly rare for an athlete to ask you a question about yourself under these circumstances. So, like, how did that like how did that go down? It's funny going through the Brooklyn Nets organization. I got the sense right away that they could not get me, even if they wanted to, could not get me Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving or James Harden. Just like the big three were off the table. Um, and my total speculation, but I feel like could those, they get you Joe that, Harris? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I talked to Joe Harris, Jeff Green, um, <laughs> of course, Steve Nash, and, and Sean Marks. I mean, it's um, funny, but it does show like these are how hierarchies work, and this is how the NBA works mm-hmm. now. That's this like, is the player empowerment era, and I think you know it's speculation, but I think I think part of these this level of player coming to a place like Brooklyn that's very player friendly was like, guys, we're not going to hassle you with media obligations in the way you used to be ten years ago. So I couldn't get him. So I, I emailed through like his, his corporate arm and got a response right away. And they were just like into it for some reason. And they really wanted to highlight his business ventures and all that. So I, so, so I got invited to 35 ventures, corporate headquarters for, to hang out for a day basically. And I would have some one-on-one time with Kevin in there. And I asked for, you know, I can't remember what I asked for but we agreed on an hour and his PR woman was like, I can't imagine, you know, he's kind of a quiet guy. I can't imagine him really talking for an hour. So I said, let's just do it and see how it goes. So I go in, I'm hanging out. I'm getting the vibe of the place. Katie comes and right away he pulls me aside, pulls me into his office and says, let's do this interview. And, and we start talking about the asteroid and all that. (laughs) And we're going strong for pretty much for like an hour and I'm like, we're coming to the end of our time. And he's like, oh, I got to go do like meetings and stuff, but, but I want to keep going. Um, 
So he goes off and does a meeting with Nike and he does a podcast with ESPN and then he pulls me into a different office and he's and he's just like just hanging out. I mean, just as relaxed as could be and just wants to talk about whatever I want to talk about. And he's showing me the lock screen on his phone and I'm asking if I can look at his Twitter mentions and like all this stuff. And he's just willing to go anywhere. You know, I asked him, like, what's your what's my favorite interview question? What's your very first memory? And he just went there back to being like two years old, strapped into a stroller on the porch at his grandma's house. And like, um, it, it was great. I mean, he was just like he was present. And this is what I, I talked to Kevin Durant for a total of 17 minutes before this back in 2012. And I always remember that conversation because he was deep in 17 minutes. He was deep. And he told me this childhood story that I use in my book about a time his dad came back and like essentially like kind of roughed him up in the driveway and bullied him in a game of one on one that was like really deep and meaningful to him. And and um, so so I got essentially two hours of that. And uh, it was I kind of expected him to be in corporate mode, but he was in complete full-on Kevin Durant chill philosopher mode and it was awesome. Did it surprise you though? I mean what we know publicly about Durant is that he goes there, right? He's this vulnerable, open, yeah, yeah, yeah. sometimes immature, juvenile on Twitter arguing with with people dinging him in his mentions. Um that we know that that's there, but what, you know, what the the profile did for me was make me understand him better that this isn't just sort of an insecure guy who's um you know who who were grafting our own impressions as fans onto it's that this is actually a genuinely interesting dude who likes to think about shit that isn't basketball or business yeah totally totally um i was worried that his evolution uh would have stamped some of that out of him and that he would have been like I said, kind of on message and pushing the brand, but, but he wasn't that at all. No, he was who I expected, but more so. And, um, I think I've always wanted to know more about, I knew kind of the general outlines of his childhood and all that stuff. And I just wanted to get in there with him and, and, and go as deep as I could go on all that. And so, um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's who he is. He's like, he's like, in some ways he's kind of, emotionally like still very much back there in his childhood and other ways he's like out sort of exploring the world trying to find what what he's going to resonate with i mean he's such a kind of searcher i i did leave the conversation thinking like back in 2016 you know when he made that free agency decision that lit the world on fire like i really thought from my okc perspective like i really thought it was like 80 20 he was staying in oklahoma city I look back at that now after this conversation I had with him, after seeing what he's done since, and, like, that is insane. He was never going to stay in Oklahoma City. Like, and he, he's not going to stay in Brooklyn. Like, this guy's not staying anywhere. This guy's going to end up living on Mars and, like, starting a, a, a basketball league on Mars or something. Like, this guy is just looking for something and always will be. So I now feel, like, a little bit of a dick for starting – the segment by talking about like 115 to 107 and 200 minutes, like all of that seems just so mundane now. And that my pivot here is like the reason we care about this guy is because he's in many ways the best at what he does. Like even on this big three, he transcends. And even in this sport where there's never been more talent ever, he transcends. You have a sentence, Durant wondered out loud, for instance, why he has devoted his entire life to basketball. And so there is that central conflict, and we have it with all of our 
great athletes and particularly the thoughtful ones is that why, if you are somebody who has this questing nature and who has so many interests and who thinks about things beyond basketball, has he devoted his entire existence to this game and the sport to such an extent that he's mastered it? Do you feel like you have any better answer to that question than you did going in? I feel like I kind of confirmed with him what I suspected, which was, you know, and it, it's hard to say how much of this is me projecting because part of why I identify with this guy is I feel like I have a similar story. Like I came from a very, in certain ways, unstable childhood. And the thing I latched onto really hard as a teenager was was wanting to become a, a writer uh, and make, make a name for myself in writing. And I think he latched onto the stability of basketball at like age seven, eight, nine, and became, as I say in the piece, this kind of monk of basketball and really lived his life with this ascetic religious devotion. And so you think that the mistake that you made is thinking that he would want to latch onto the stability of Oklahoma City yeah, and not yeah, realizing yeah, yeah. that as long as basketball was, like basketball would be wherever he went. Exactly. He, he, he belongs to the religion of basketball and not to any specific church of basketball. And, he, and he'll go anywhere. Yeah, I think that's what I didn't realize. And he talked in those terms a lot. He used the, uh, in one of the quotes I use, um, he says something about like, if you look at it from a universe perspective, and I really latched onto that because he was always doing that, like the universe perspective, like, like, and, and this is something that got cut out of the piece too, but something is interesting about where he comes from is like, people always say he grew up in Seat Pleasant and that turns out to just be this kind of convenient shorthand. That's the name of this little tiny area of Prince George's County, um, where the rec center was that he played a lot. His grandma's house, which was the center of his life was actually in Capitol Heights, Maryland. But as he pointed out to me, it's all this, as he said, it's all the same shit. Like it's all the same place. It's like you walk two minutes and you're crossing like into DC and then into seat pleasant and back to Capitol Heights and then to Fairmount Heights. And like, it's just like a hundred thousand separate towns that are the same thing. And so I feel like that maybe set the cast of his mind a little bit. Cause he did that about everything. He was like, I was like, what about playing for like the fans in Brooklyn? Like the most diverse fan base in us sports. Like, does that matter to you? And he's like, Nope, not really. It's all one fan base, the NBA. Like you just go up a little bit and like all the teams are essentially the same. And like, and, and the way he addressed the super team issue, like the controversy of players having too much power and forming super teams. He's like, look, he's like front offices have been doing this for the entire history of the league. Like they're always stealing each other's best talent. Coaches are running each other's best plays. Training staffs are using all the same equipment. They're using all the same techniques. Um, the, the, like the, like promotional people are using the same promotions. Like it's all the same. It's just one big giant league. And we all just need to be looking at it as we're all on the same team and we're working together. And like we get competition on the floor, but but in reality, we're just all one big entity. And he was always doing that thing where he's like rising up 300 miles above and looking down and, and seeing that we're all just connected. <laughs> so, so yeah, that was, that was a long way of answering that. But I think the details that we argue about and scream about 
whether he's playing for this team or that team, whether he likes this teammate or that team, I don't think matter to him that fundamentally. And isn't that a, one of the fundamental distinctions with between Durant and other megastars like LeBron James or Michael Jordan? Um, you, you draw one comparison in the piece where you say where James appears to be visibly calculating his next move at every moment, often in nakedly corporate terms, Durant tends to follow his feelings. And when we think of Michael Jordan, we think about this uber-competitive control freak. Durant doesn't seem to embody any of those characteristics, and yet he is still one of the greatest basketball players of his or any generation. Does that distinction matter to him? Does he view those guys differently, or does he just accept the way he's built and just go out and play basketball as well as they do? Yeah, I think the second one of those. I think he accepts it. Um, I mean, you catch him in a certain mood, he'll probably say that he's just like those guys and he's hyper competitive. And, and, and I think, you know, he, he talks a lot of junk on the floor and like he really gets into it with people and, um, he contains all of that stuff. But yeah, the top note of Kevin Durant is very different from Kobe or Michael or that, that kind of like, um, sociopathic drive. He's just way more chill. He's <laughs> way more chill. And it's and that's part of the novelty of it is watching that guy with that personality be, you know, right up there with the greatest basketball player you're ever going to see. I mean, other than, you know, rather than someone like Russell Westbrook, who has the Kobe thing, who has that almost superhuman crazy drive. So it's like trying to understand how a guy this relaxed and thoughtful also has that Michael Jordan drive. I still don't quite understand that. I think that's something that's kind of ineffable and part of the fascination of this guy. Sam Anderson is the author of the book Boomtown and his piece headlined, headline not written by Sam, Kevin Durant and possibly the greatest basketball team of all time. It's in the New York Times Magazine. We'll link to it on our show page. Sam, thanks so much. Thanks, my pleasure. On this week's bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we're going to continue our conversation with Sam Anderson. We're going to talk more about Kevin Durant, but also about Damian Lillard and whether he will be the next subject of a long-form profile. To hear that discussion, you have to be a Slate Plus member. In addition to bonus segments on this show and Slow Burn and other shows, the Political Gab Fest included, you also get ad-free podcasts and unlimited reading on Slate.com, among other perks. And it's only $1 for the first month if you want to try it out. Sign up at Slate.com slash Hangup Plus. That's Slate.com slash Hangup Plus. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
After Sunday night's instant classic between the men's national soccer teams of the United States and Mexico, our friend Spencer Hall tweeted, a guy jumped off the broadcast set and presumably straight into hell, and it wasn't the 10th wildest thing. I counted at least 14 things that were arguably wilder, not including first-time commentator and longtime U.S. hero Clint Dempsey's camouflage sports coat. In the end, the USA came from behind twice to win 3-2 on a Christian Pulisic penalty kick in, like, the 433rd minute of play and collect the very first CONCACAF Nations League championship trophy. Joel, you never forget your first CONCACAF Nations League championship. The relatively low stakes, however, should not obscure either the utter insanity of this match or what it indicated about the future and even present of the men's team, which are rather significant, I think. You watched. Did you order a Weston McKenney jersey right after the game? Because you should have. You know, he was born in Little Elm, Texas. I don't, I don't, you know, I'm just now learning of this Weston McKinney person, but you said low stakes. Um, The way people reacted yesterday, I thought that this was actually meaningful in some sort of way that admitted you qualified for the World Cup or I don't, you know, I guess I get confused because there's so many CONCACAF competitions and the U.S. men's team is on TV every few months and everybody gathers around the TV to root for them. And everybody gets really excited or dramatic about the result. And then you find out, oh, wait, that actually doesn't have anything to do with like the Welcome World Cup to National whatever. Team Soccer fandom, Joel. Yeah. yeah. Every well, game uh, matters because there are so few games, right? So this was an actual competition, though. And there is this distinction that between like a friendly match or a match where, you know, the, where the manager is trying out new players and something that actually has a title. So, you know, I said relatively low stakes because no, it's not qualifying the World Cup. This is a bullshit manufactured tournament that is designed to generate some TV revenue in the absence, sort of instead of a friendly match that has no prize attached. But, Josh, there were real stakes here and that was like, are all of these young, terrific European-based players who are being thrown on the field together for basically the first time in any meaningful competition and in the run-up to the qualification for next year's actual World Cup, how would they do? How did they do? Are you getting, you know, with ping-ponging back and forth between calling it meaningful and meaningless about six to eight times in that, yes. that in- introduction? Well, are you getting vertigo? The trophy is meaningless. The... <laughs> The game itself and the what it portends are meaningful. It is possible to hold those two contradictory thoughts at once. Yes, we're complicated people with complicated thoughts. So it was the first, quote-unquote, competitive match for the U.S. men's national team in over 500 days. And it was meaningful for the fan base because there's been this sense of anticipation of will this be the generation to both kind of redeem it, the the failures of um, the team that lost to Trinidad in 2017 and didn't make the World Cup, but also in a larger sense to bring the United States men's team to international glory. And Mexico is the measuring stick and has always been and probably will always be the measuring stick for the U.S. men's national team. And it's gone back and forth of who's been the most dominant in the region. But I think there is always this anxiety about how do we stack up 
against the Mexican national team, especially a Mexican team that's been really strong in recent years. And so that's why there was so much anticipation around this game. And that's why this victory, I think, is meaningful. And not just to fans, but you get the sense, Joel, from watching the game and the reaction to it, that it was really meaningful to these players, too. Like, these guys had never played together in a game like this. And the fact that the goal scorers were Christian Pulisic, Weston McKinney, and Gio Reyna, who are sort of like the leading figures of this new generation, that also felt meaningful. Well, yeah, I mean, I have to take you guys' word for it, right? That uh, it's meaningful. Uh, you know, I, I'm familiarizing myself with the FIFA international rankings because I'm just like, oh, okay, they're excited about beating Mexico, even though this is a meaningful or meaningless match. Uh, so we don't quite know the stakes, but I was like, okay, well, let's see how good Mexico actually is. And then I see that Mexico was ranked 11th in the most recent FIFA rankings and the U.S. was number 20. And I'm like, okay, I guess that sounds pretty good. I did, like if the U.S. is ranked somewhere between 10 and 20, does that mean that they're returning to glory or, or you know what I mean? Like, I don't, I, I guess I just don't kind of understand. Well, I think the rank, the FIFA rankings are always kind of fraught, but in particular, since they haven't played a competitive match in more than 500 days, I think the number of data points that we have to rely on about how good the U.S. is, but how good like really any team is right now. I, so I think this was a kind of measuring stick for them. Well, yeah, well, I mean, you know, and obviously, like you said, I mean, the players were obviously hyped about it, although I, I can't imagine that like as an athlete, if you play in some uh, international competition with some attached stakes and you win in that dramatic of a fashion that it wouldn't resonate to you and not make you excited. Like I can totally get that. Um, but I guess the thing is for me is that American soccer fans are always like living and dying by the results of the next game. And it means something fans of any other team. Well, no, I mean, no, you know, actually not because in like basketball, baseball, maybe less football, but like each week doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to, it, it, it makes it, it reflects on the legacy of the, the upcoming team or that the trajectory of a team. Like sometimes a game is just a game, but in soccer, I'm finding out, and particularly with the U.S. men's national team, that we don't feel that way, that every game is a referendum on the status of the national team's status in the world. And I mean, I guess it's just sort of confusing to me to keep up with, you know, the last time we did a segment on the U.S. men's national team, they had won a game and lost a game in the same weekend because there were two different things. And it's like people were frustrated with the U.S. national team. And then all of a sudden they weren't. So like, I guess it just seems sort of exhausting to figure out which of these competitions actually matter and which should I take a lesson from? Because it just seems like every time it's different. That's the beauty of international soccer, Joel. I mean, it really is. You get to ride the wave of, of emotion, a sort of a sign, an over value to every game. And that's kind of what it's about because you look at like you're the coach of the men's national team, Greg Berhalter of the U.S. in this case, who was not a beloved choice. He's like the brother of the one of the, the chief executives of U.S. soccer at the time when he was hired. He's an American when there was a lot of clamor for the United States to go hire a prominent international coach who could nurture a lot of these young stars who were playing on top clubs in Europe, the biggest collection of Americans playing in top leagues overseas ever. Um, so you're, you know, you don't play that many games. So his job is largely recruiting and planning. So every game does have this added meaning. And then the Mexico rivalry, which I think you 
had to be blind not to see, um, is incredibly intense, both in the stands and on the field. The players don't like each other, even if they don't know each other that well. I mean, I mentioned that I mentioned Spencer Hall's tweet at the top, but the game was insane. I mean, Mexico scores a minute into the game, and here's my list of shit that happened. There was a, a pitch invader. Our, the U.S. goalkeeper got a weird injury. Play was suspended after a fight when a Mexico player tried to kick the ball out of the American goalkeeper's hands. Mexican fans delivered this homophobic chant that, that, that's that been happening for years that, that authorities have been unable to stop. Um, get Play was stopped for that. There were three VAR reviews, one resulting in an overturned goal, two resulting in goals. The Mexican red coach got a red card. An American player was hit in the head by a bottle of Coke during a goal celebration. They played about 140 or 45 minutes um, of soccer. Um, it was insane. And the, I think that goes back to what you said, Josh, about how this appeared to matter because players also get indoctrinated into rivalries, right? And this is a rivalry that for a lot of these players, they've never experienced before, particularly some of the European-based players and dual nationals that haven't been on the U.S. team for a long time. Yeah, and like Christian Pulisic scores the penalty and rips off his shirt and goes to the corner uh, where a lot of Mexican fans were, and they start getting shit thrown on them, and Gio Reyna gets hit with a drink, and like it, it didn't. It seemed at the time like it was a lot worse than it ended up being. But like he has people going up and like putting the you know moving a finger the concussion, across the side and like yeah. check and see if he had a concussion. I mean, so that sequence it was really interesting because on the one hand, there's something incredibly authentic and sincere about the joy that, you know, Polisic felt after being very involved in the qualifying failure and being the best player in America and like coming up big in this, in this moment and like wanting to celebrate that. But I also got the sense that there was this sort of performance aspect to it. Like I am going to now do the thing that you do when you are a great player and like I am going to like seize this mantle as Captain America and I'm going to like do the thing that you do when you do that. And like we are now going to like enact what one does in this rivalry. So I'm not trying to say that it was like inauthentic or fake, but it just felt so clear. And then back to this distinction between meaningfulness and meaninglessness. In that moment, it just felt like these young players were very consciously like performing how one performs in this game and this team and like wanting to take this mantle and like be be these people. I think they wanted to recapture the feeling that American soccer players and fans have occasionally had over the last 20 years. And I think they all, they're not dumb. They recognize that they're really good. There were six Americans 22 or younger in the starting lineup. Weston McKenney, Mark McKenzie, the defender who got burned in the first minute, Christian Pulisic, Josh Sargent, Serginho Dest, and Gio Reyna, who's just 18. Um, so they're learning to be the emblem of U.S. soccer. Um, they are trying to sort of capture some of the excitement that has largely gone to the women's team, who has been so successful. I think they want to feel that. 
And like a lot of these players have been on U.S. youth national teams. They've played Mexico in competitions before at the youth level. But this really is different. And that was not a full stadium, but it sure as hell felt like one. And Joel, you must have like felt like, wow, people care about this. This looks intense. And it was intense. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't want to deny that the game had its moments. And I, I should also be clear that I was watching the... Uh, Jake Paul Floyd Mayweather fight for a good portion of this game. So I was kind of going back and forth, right? Uh, but it's certainly down the stretch. Speaking of things that are uh, both meaningful and meaningless. I mean, yeah, right. I'm serious. We, that, that should be our fifth segment today. I mean, it clearly meant a lot. It was clearly intense. It, it was hard to not sort of get caught up in the intensity of the competition. I guess I'm going to circle back to what I said in our previous segment about U.S. soccer. I'm a little wary of expressing patriotism through international sports. And the reason I say that is because it seems to bring out the worst in people, although we've had a lot of like bad fan behavior all over in sports, and, and, and not even just fan behavior, like human behavior since the pandemic has gotten started. But like, it just, the fan behavior last night was just sort of like a catalyst for all the things that I'm wary of when it comes to this sort of competition. The chance, the throwing stuff at players, and then... I'm looking at my timeline as the game goes on and I'm seeing people like come very close to saying racist things about Mexican fans. And I'm just so that's why I'm just a little less enthused about American greatness in any sport, but certainly this, because it just seems to lead to some really ugly places. Although I would not deny that it was sort of hilarious that when Mexico goes up, you know, in the first few seconds, and the American soccer fans responded like Cleveland Browns fans. They're just like, oh, oh, God, this is terrible. Things are going to go horrible. You know, they're just expecting everything to go wrong. And so that was kind of cool. But I guess I'm just a little I, I just again, I'm, I, I don't know that I need American the Americans to be great at soccer for me to enjoy soccer or for, you know, whatever. I just, you know, I headline Joel Anderson hates America. I do. I do think that it's uh, <laughs> it's really fair to ask the question of like, why is there a carve out to the extent that there is one for this horrifying behavior in the context of the USA Mexico rivalry? Because when you see a guy get clocked in the face with a soda, let's say in an NBA game, then there's a whole segment that is only about a guy getting clocked in the face with the soda in an NBA game. It would be about what's wrong with fans. Is it because of the pandemic what do we need to do about our society? Mm-hmm. Whereas in this game, it's like, what an amazing atmosphere. This is the like traditional, long-hated, continental rivalry that we all love. And didn't that make it even more kind of fun and exciting that the guy got hit in the face with soda? Wait, Whereas, wait, 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 wait. Go ahead, and I'm going to respond. <laughs> that is traditionally what happens. So I, I'm sure that not everyone felt that way. But Stefan, I do genuinely feel like there is a kind of exception made in international soccer for this kind of behavior. And that it is worth, like, as Joel said, like thinking about what are kind of the darker undercurrents here and what is it exactly that we're celebrating? Yeah, no, none of that is new, of course, right? In At the Azteca Stadium in Mexico City, fans would throw bags of urine on American players in the 90s and 2000s. Um, Europe, European stadiums get shut down because of fan behavior. 
um, which we mentioned on the show last week. The, the problem is one of a failure to enforce. This is a problem at the organizational level. This is a problem for FIFA and it's a problem for CONCACAF for... You know, if, if the punishment is, oh, in the 99th minute of a game, we're going to put up a, a, a message on the Jumbotron and stop play for a few minutes, like that's going to eradicate this, this long-standing awful chant that has been repeated over There's and over step and process, over. Stephen. I know. And the third step is never, right? You never get to step three. Certainly probably could have gotten to step three last night. The referee starts counting. One. That's right. Two. Three. We're going to go home if you don't stop. Four. Yeah. Um, and where was security to stop people throwing shit on the field or throw them out immediately? I mean, the guy that dumped popcorn on Russell Westbrook was escorted out of that arena in two seconds. But we can't deny it. Like, the fans of the national team and of the sport love this. And I don't think they love the people throwing shit on the field. I've been to U.S.-Mexico games and did not throw anything on the field. don't think in 20 years people are going to be like, remember that amazing game where people threw shit on the field? People might claim that they don't like it, but... Here's well, what yeah, I, people, the, you, what people I have been reveling that. in that atmosphere since, that game, since the game yeah, ended. I, I yeah. agree with Joel. <laughs> yeah, people... I mean, I think that is a huge part of the appeal because, it, like, to the... You know, when we're talking about meaningful and meaningless, the 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 fan response imbues it with meaning, and you can see that like it obviously means something to the fans and the players when that sort of scene happens. And that's all. That's not all people we're talking about, but that was a huge part of like the excitement that people seem to have about the game, and that seems to me to be an undercurrent for every one of these international competitions. Like how the fans respond, are they throwing shit at people? Were there fights? That sort of stuff. And, and I think again, that does overstate it a little. I want to end the segment with a soccer happy note. I want to play the clip. <laughs> um, we need to get Stefan back to his happy place. Oh yeah, also, to my Joel, I told you, it's, it's your fault. It's you all's fault. Okay, you no, Joel, 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 Joel. <laughs> you love fights. You love fights. Oh, I love a fight. You yeah. love a fight. Yeah, so, love a fight. So we're Mexican human, player whatever. Had his, had, his, had, his, had his arm, his hand around Weston McKenney's neck, man. Joel, you should have been down there defending McKenney. I don't hear you defending Weston McKenney. Uh, well, I mean, I told you, I'm, I'm not certain that I'm an Amer- a USA soccer fan yet. Yeah, I, they've still got some work to do to convince me before I'm going to take right. a side. Right, I want to get to my let's happy get place. Into okay, happy go place. for it. I want to get back to my happy place, right? All right, so 124th minute. VAR video review gives a penalty to Mexico. Pulisic had scored 10 minutes earlier. Ethan Horvath, backup goalkeeper to Zach Steffen. Steffen plays for Manchester City. Ethan Horvath barely played for a club in Belgium this past season. Comes on, makes a couple of brilliant saves, and now he is called to make, to stop a penalty that would tie the game. Let us listen to the clip first in English and then in Spanish. Guardado from this spot. And he's denied! Horvath with the save of his life! The hero off the bench for the U.S. And he collects into those safe hands. All right, that was on the CBS Sports Network. And here we are in Spanish, the call. This was on Univision. Silva Pitti. De pierna izquierda viene Andrés Guardado. Le pegó. Ethan Horvath, Guardado. Ethan Horvath, Guardado. Ethan Horvath, Guardado. Ethan 
Uh, the great thing about that clip is that he tries to roll into what would be the traditional goal call by saying le pego, he takes it, but then Horvath makes the save. I'm glad you're in your happy place. I feel Stefan. much better now. And I now. was in my happy place watching the game. I got to admit. That was I'm, not, I'm not going to talk about how these penalty kicks seem to have like disproportionate weight in a game where there's not very many goals scored. That's a, t- that's a for conversation for another time. That. Okay. Thank you. Coming up next, a conversation about the legacy of Duke basketball's Coach K. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when you did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Last week, Duke men's basketball coach Mike Krzyzewski announced that he will retire after the 2021-2022 season. That means the 74-year-old Krzyzewski, the winningest coach in Division I men's basketball history, will likely stage an eye-roll-inducing farewell tour in his final year on the sideline. But our very own Josh got the send-off started Thursday in a piece headlined, What Was Mike Krzyzewski's Mission, Really? In the essay, Josh opened, with the, opened the piece with an anecdote about the time Krzyzewski summoned the sports department of the campus newspaper to berate them about an article about his team that he didn't like. Josh, you also closed the piece by writing that Krzyzewski was a vicious competitor, a self-appointed moral arbiter, and a basketball coach inclined to blow the whistle on anything but the crooked pastime that he made his own. Okay, so Josh, you're a very busy man. We all know this. What about Coach K and his announcement that day made you set aside some time to eulogize the end of his career? So it's like if you, you know, go to see uh, AHA in concert and they don't play Take On Me. You got to play the hits, Joel. You got to give people <laughs> what they want. Um, and, you know, this is what, what the people expect from me. And I don't want to disappoint the readers. I don't want to disappoint the listeners. The, the thing that always has rankled me about Coach K, and I think people sometimes misunderstand. It's not that I think that he's a particularly loathsome character compared to his peers. It's that I think he's exactly like his peers and that um, he and his program, his school, and their fans make him out to be something that he isn't. And what he is is the most important figure in modern college basketball, the best coach and the most successful coach in modern college basketball, and a person, and this is a point I made in the piece, that has never done anything to change what college basketball is and um, you know what it will be. And so I think his legacy, Stefan, is one of continuity and maintenance. And he is somebody who, I think as far as the NCAA is concerned, was a godsend in creating this image, however accurate or inaccurate it was, of college basketball as this moral endeavor, as a place for education and learning and where 
you know, that kind of transcended the like mundanity of a mere sport. And I don't think that that's true. And I think that that's a damaging image that he helped to create. And it's one that's, I think in recent years, people are becoming wiser to, but to the extent that it, that fiction was maintained for as long as it has been, I think he was a major reason for that. Yeah, and the fiction was maintained at a time when other coaches were getting taken down, um, when college basketball as an entity was viewed with increasing skepticism, not as if it wasn't in the 1970s and 1980s before Krzyzewski um, rose to power. But what Krzyzewski has done, I think, Josh and Joel, is that he exploited the willingness of the public to believe that it was possible to run a major college sports program in a way that defied the popular notion of what college sports had become. And Krzyzewski did that in two ways. One was, for many years, recruiting players whom he encouraged to stay, for his own benefit, of course, because the older and more mature and better they got, the more likely that Duke was to win a championship, but also as a matter of public relations. What Krzyzewski did was give Duke the motor to raise millions upon millions of dollars um, for that institution um, and cement its ability to be a power in this sport. Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's important to remember that he is a former player and mentee of Bobby Knight, who was the all-time winningest men's coach in Division One history before Mike Krzyzewski. And that is exactly, you know, the the binary by which Bob Knight lived by. It's important to remember that Bobby Knight is, you know, was posed as sort of an alternative to guys like Jerry Tarkanian, uh, Eddie Sutton, who finally just now got inducted into the college, uh, you know, to the Basketball Hall of Fame. So being part, being a sanctimonious grandfatherly figure is like part and parcel of being a legendary college coach if you come out of that era. And to thrive in that ecosystem, you pretty much have to pose as someone of moral rectitude, but also for somebody for whom basketball means more than a game. Keep in mind, that's John Wooden. First of all, before I move on from John Wooden, I mean, in retrospect, we know that John Wooden wasn't clean. You know, he wasn't a perfect, uh, he wasn't this perfectly clean figure. I mean, if anybody, just Google Sam Gilbert in UCLA if you want to know about how UCLA got it done in the 50s and 60s, right? Or or think about Joe Paterno, Bobby Bowden, all these guys who sort of built up this image of moral rectitude and it's sort of like kind of has fallen away as they retired or after they retired so i mean to coach k's credit he made it through all that with very few very few controversies that stick to him in his legacy at the end of the day like he's going to retire with honor because he basically got through this time without having you know one of those big blow-ups like his mentor bobby knight or he didn't get busted for running a dirty program even though you know there are allegations that he did and so he got out at kind of the right time and so like to the extent that like i have any admiration for him is like he navigated a really dirty business profited off of it and got out before you know the cycle ran its course yeah i think that's right and i think I always want to kind of take pains to give credit where it's due and not exaggerate what I think his failings are and where I think the credit is due is like, I think there is some sincere belief that underlies what he's done in his approach. Like he's a guy who 
came out of Chicago and got an opportunity to go to West Point and credits it for, and, you know, his experience with Bob Knight with like molding him into the person that he is. And we're all products of our environment. And so I think he felt like what had benefited him and what had been done to him and for him would benefit others. And also, I think we really need to acknowledge that his players seem to really revere him. It's not like there's a trail of Duke. I I mean, there might be, there might be some, I don't want to like universalize here, but it's not like there's an enormous number of Duke guys running around and saying coach K is a fraud or coach K didn't, um, you know, more common is like, he's the most important person in my life. And like, like what Jay Billis said this, this past week. And so, um, by the standards of that he set for himself and by the standards of his profession, he not only succeeded, but excelled. I just think the standards of the profession are whacked. And I like, I think Will Wade is whacked. Like, I think all of these guys are whacked. And just, again, the thing that rankles for me is the way in which he was only judged by the kind of morals and ethics of the sport and not by a larger kind of system of morals and ethics that would maybe guide someone away from being the like dominant figure in this sport that has profited off of unpaid players that had him, you know, making millions off of a Nike deal when his players got nothing that had him, you know, all of, all of the things that we've discussed at length and for years on the show about the NCAA. Right. But, and isn't Josh the, the, the issue that, Coach K had the ability, he had the authority, the moral authority to change the system. Maybe more than anybody else. Like to the extent there's no commissioner of college basketball, but he is the closest I think that we had to somebody who could have been played that role. Right. But you're asking him to do something that he fundamentally doesn't believe in, though. Right. You know what I mean? Like, that's I just, kind of. I, I totally agree, but it just feels like a missed opportunity and something that when we're talking about his legacy, you have to think about the opportunity cost. Like, what could have, what could someone who actually was the person that people <laughs> say that Coach K was, like, what could that person have accomplished? Yeah, but I, here's the thing. So, I mean, I, I get it because obviously, you know, I believe that it's morally wrong to not play co- college athletes. And, and I balance that while saying, you know, college athletics are important for a whole swath of people who might not otherwise have an opportunity to get a free college education. But, I mean, what did we sort of expect of Coach K? Like, what did we really expect him to do in this environment? And keep in mind, it's only very recently that people have sort of come around to the idea that players have some sort of, um, uh, you know, they have a right to their name, image, and likeness, or that there maybe there should be some alternatives for people who don't want to go through that NCAA pipeline. Like only now is that stuff sort of opening up. This isn't, you know, a thing that has been going on for a couple of decades. And furthermore, most people don't even believe the things that we believe. That you know, most college sports fans, most college athletics fans, don't believe we, we want Coach K to believe in this instance. So it doesn't like. I'm sort of judging him by the standards of his profession and the people that that he would consider to be his constituency. And by that standard, Coach K basically did about as well as you can do, you know? Yeah, I, but th- there's more to it, though, because, yes, 
I think Coach K is universally regarded as a good person. His relationship with Jim Valvano is often um, cited as an example of Coach K's generosity and, and, and decency. Um, but when Coach K was challenged or there was a, um, a situation where, you know, maybe Duke lost, he did not always come off as, um, to put it mildly, a generous person or a good loser. Albert uh, Bernecco in Defector, in the piece in a piece uh, titled See You Later to This Butthead, wrote, he is also inarguably the greatest self-promoter in the college game's history, a thin-skinned and vicious bully, a sanctimonious scold, and a petty, sore loser who has mostly successfully portrayed himself as a humble and principled educator and molder of honorable men over the nearly half a century during which he reaped fortune and acclaim beyond measure off the work of unpaid laborers. So there is a personality thing, and if you were not a Duke fan, you absolutely latch onto that. Yeah, I, I actually feel like the personality stuff is a little bit overplayed. Like the people are like, oh, he curses and so, but in public he doesn't use curse words. It's like, yeah, he's a coach. It's like that that part I feel I feel like the the critics of Coach K, it's like you get a, a little bit out over your skis if if you're focused on that stuff. I don't know. Calling a bunch of student reporters to the... Hey, I made that the lead of my piece. I so. know you did. <laughs> I know you did. I mean, what does that reflect? I mean, it's a long time ago, and he claims that he had some sort of, you know, come to Jesus moment after that and was troubled by it, but right. still complained that the kids should have apologized. Yeah, coaches are petty times, like for the most part. Sure. A lot of them, right? Like you can't means, be you can't be a good coach without being a petty. Yeah, tyrant, yeah, right? right. Like you have to be sort of a control freak, and you know, uh, you sort of have to believe you have to believe in your way. And like few people, uh, you know, lived up to that in the way that Coach K did. But I, I guess like it's interesting because I, I kind of wanted to talk about how good he was as a coach, though, because I mean, for all the things that we say about him, that he's stuck in sort of this old this old archetype of what a college basketball coach is, he was extremely great at like adjusting to the times. Like, like at least when it came to like program building, he was fine at adjusting. Like he figured out a way to stay relevant and great and near the top of his profession from the start to the finish of his career. And that's just not something that you see a lot. Yeah, I think that's totally true. And, you know, obviously he was a great game coach too. Um, you know, that his career is long enough that we can't, really linger on any of, uh, you know, even if we, we don't have time to talk about any of the five championships individually, but he was, there were, there weren't many people that you would argue were better at X's and O's or roster management than he was. But um, the fact that he moved to more of the one and done model, kind of starting with Kyrie Irving, moving into Jason Tatum, and then kind of Zion Williamson as the last kind of talismanic player of the Coach K era. I'm curious what you guys think about that. And also, you know, in the interest of fairness, we should note that he came out publicly in favor of name, image, and likeness. Not like he was a big leader in, the, in it, but uh, he even if he grudgingly came along, he did come along. And so that's something that that's worth noting. But I guess the, my question is, with the sort of like move away from oh, all players have to stay four years and that's the only way to do college basketball Two, like one and dones are okay and I'm going to recruit them and hopefully they'll lead me to championships. Does that to you feel like kind of moral compromise and I only care about winning or does it feel like here's a guy who 
is adjusting to the times and like good for, good for him and like you know one and done is more moral than like saying oh we only take four year guys. I think the on the on the morality scale, I tip toward Calipari in Kentucky, saying like look, I'm here to help these guys get careers, to help them become successful professionals and make millions of dollars in the NBA. And, and that's the, way more honest than saying oh these guys are going to have a chance to get you know get an educate i mean the guys that are going to duke are the ones who generally the reason that they would go there is cuz they have pro aspirations and the best thing that shashevsky could do is prepare them for the nba not to like help them get their degree and whatever like you can do that at any division 1 program and I mean, I think if you look at the adjustment that Shashevsky made, it was out of necessity, right, Joel? I mean, it wasn't as if Mike Shashevsky was standing up saying, like Calipari, like, hey, this is in the best interest of, of every player that I'm going to recruit. You know, Elton Brand says that Shashevsky told me to go pro because it was the right thing to do. So I'm sure every one of these power coaches felt that conflict. And there was a point in all of their careers where they recognized that they could not publicly maintain the same position that they had for the first 30 years of their careers, which was that everybody should stay four years because it's great for you as a human being and you're, you're going to get a degree. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I definitely think self-interest drove that, you know, that, that evolution, right? But I do think that, and not to be ageist, but... I mean, you know, Coach K is going to be 75 when this, you know, when this season starts. And for him to have evolved in that way constantly over and over again over the last 20, 30 years is impressive to me. And it speaks to why he was able to retire as the winningest coach in men's Division I basketball history. Yeah, and I don't want to seem like I'm a Coach K fan. Like I like I should just for the record, like I you know, I hated Duke growing up. Like I was a UNLV fan. I was a Fab Five fan. You know all those teams that you know all the teams that you don't really see in college basketball anymore. Like um, I rooted for them against Duke, but I guess like at the end of the day, I'm 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 sort of like this. You kind of had to give it to the dude. You know what I mean? Because like most guy, most coaches don't end in that way. It's imp- it's important to remember how Bobby Knight's career ended in disgrace. Like he embarrassed himself and then got bumped down to Texas Tech and did okay. You know, but it like he You're didn't like talking about a mafia movie where the guy like rides off in the sunset at the end as opposed yeah, to like I mean, get it, he, getting uh getting, you know, gunned down in a hail of bullets. I mean the the dude the dude got out, you know, he's kind of Teflon in that way and like I got to kind of give it to him, you know, like and and you know, for, you know, we're I mean, we're not young people, but like it sort of signals the end of an era to me where like college basketball was an important part of the landscape. Like Coach K leaving, Roy Williams leaving, uh, you know, Lute Olson and John Thompson died last year. John Chaney died in January. It's sort of the end of an era for college basketball in a lot of ways. And so I, you know, I, as much as like I don't like what that era of basketball represented in terms of like disempowering the players and like they kind of kept them out of the power structure, I also think that. You know, for the, those of us who grew up when college basketball meant something more than it does today, it's sort of sad to see it kind of coming to an end right now. Well, I mean, Kurt Streeter, uh, the columnist in the New York Times, made that point and an additional one, is, which is that this does feel like the end of the era of the super coach in college basketball, this dominant public figure um, who commands all respect and attention, and at the same time, a rising 
um, empowerment movement for players that we've seen to various degrees of success over the last two, three, four years, but that we are seeing continuously. Um, and if the power balance is shifting, that's a good thing. And I think it is a good marker for the end of the careers of, of people like Roy Williams and Mike Krzyzewski, who grew up in an entirely different coach-centered uh, universe. I'm impressed that you said Shusheski and not Coach K this entire segment, and I wish I'd had that sort of boldness. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. And now it is time for After Balls. I was curious about the asteroid that struck the Chesapeake Bay that Sam Anderson talked to Kevin Durant about. Did a little Googling. The U.S. Geological Survey says that uh, the event was called the Chesapeake Bay Bolide Impact. And Bolide is a comet or asteroid. This one was three to five kilometers in diameter. It swooped through the Earth's atmosphere, very exciting, and blasted an enormous crater into the continental shelf. The crater was discovered or identified by C. Wiley Pogue of the U.S. Geological Survey, but neither the crater nor the asteroid have names. I say let's name the crater for C. Wiley Pogue and name the asteroid for Kevin Durant. That would be awesome, the Kevin Durant asteroid. Josh, what's your Chesapeake Bay bolide impact? My Chesapeake Bay impact crater is about our man, Mike Krzyzewski. Don't want to let that drop. Um, I did a bunch of reading as prep to write the piece that I did last week that Joel alluded to earlier. But there was one thing I missed that a guy named Michael Wright flagged on Twitter, and that thing is both nuts on its own, but it also, in my view, extremely telling. Um, and it begins in June 2003. Uh, that is when a Baylor basketball player named Patrick Dennehy went missing. A lot of folks are probably familiar with this. This is the reason that when people say, wow, look at it, what the Baylor basketball program came back from, this is what it came back from. Um, so in June 2003, Patrick Dennehy goes missing. In July, his body was found in a gravel pit near Waco, Texas. An autopsy determined that Dennehy had been shot and killed. And the man who did it, it turned out, was one of Dennehy's teammates, Carlton Dotson. Two years later, in 2005, Dotson pleaded guilty to the murder, and he has been in prison in Texas ever since. But let's rewind to 2003. So unrelated to the murder... 
the then Baylor coach, Dave Bliss, had been paying Dennehy under the table. This was a major NCAA violation, and Bliss did not want Dennehy's killing to expose it. And so, as Dana O'Neill wrote in a piece on ESPN.com, Bliss told his assistant coaches he wanted to float the story that Dennehy was a drug dealer, thereby explaining away the money Bliss had given to him. One of those assistant coaches that Bliss was talking to was a man named Abar Rouse. Rouse had been hired at Baylor just weeks before Dennehy went missing. When Rouse told Bliss he wasn't comfortable with the plan to smear Dennehy as a drug dealer, as Rouse is a normal human being with some form of a moral compass, Bliss reportedly put a copy of Rouse's contract highlighting the portion that showed he could hire and fire assistant coaches in front of Rouse. And so the implication is very clear, right? Like, do this or else. And so Abar Rouse did something that, in my view, is quite sensible. He recorded Dave Bliss. And on that recording, Bliss says, Reasonable doubt is there's nobody right now that can say we paid Pat Dennehy because he's dead. So what we need to do is create reasonable doubt. Rouse gave that tape to the NCAA. Dave Bliss resigned. And that tape recording ended up killing Abar Rouse's career. Rouse's story is told at length in the 2017 documentary, Disgraced. It aired on Showtime. The short version is that Rouse never got a D1 coaching job again. As of 2017, he had found work, consistent work, teaching, and he was teaching in a prison in Fort Worth, Texas. So why did Abar Rouse get blacklisted? Because in the messed up world of college basketball, Rouse was not a hero for exposing Dave Bliss. Rather, he was considered a villain for tape recording his head coach. In a 2003 episode of ESPN's Outside the Lines, three of the most famous and influential coaches in the game all said that what Abar Rouse had done was absolutely wrong. Those three, Jim Beheim, Kelvin Sampson, and the man of the hour, Mike Krzyzewski. And here is the clip of what Coach K said on Outside the Lines in 2003. How could you ever build a team of coaches? Forget about just this situation, but if one of my assistants would tape every one of our uh, conversations with me not knowing it, there's no way he would be on my staff. Even as a theoretical exercise, it's hard to think of something that so clearly illustrates the skewed priorities and moral bankruptcy of big-time college coaching. A normal person, I think, would consider Abar Rouse a hero, or at the very minimum would understand why he did what he did and realized that he was in the right, then I guess the next category over it would be someone who believes that Rouse had broken some kind of moral coaching code, but maybe would understand that it's probably not wise or good to say that publicly. Like maybe keep that to yourself if you feel that way. And then there's the category that these coaches and Mike Krzyzewski among them fall into, which is, publicly, as leading figures in this sport, coming out and saying that Rouse had broken a code, and essentially issuing a warning to others in the profession that they should look at what happened to Abar Rouse. I imagine that this case study isn't taught at Duke University's Fuqua Coach K Center on Leadership and Ethics. 
nor do I think that there is an Abar Rao Center on leadership and ethics, but perhaps in both cases, we should address that. Yeah, gives us some insight to how these institutions routinely cover up abuses and other terrible practices, you know, like Joe Paterno at Penn State, uh, Michigan State, you know, every other kind of disgusting scandal we see. Uh, that sort of attitude prevails within these institutions and these, these big programs that it's much more important to them to preserve themselves than to, like, do anything that we might consider to be moral. So, yeah. I took... As I think you will note and the listeners will note, like pretty great pains to try to be fair in our segment and give praise him when it's warranted and give credit where it's due. But like this is just so unbelievable to me that it does, I think, legitimately raise questions about what kind of person would would do this. And I'm not trying to say he's that Coach K is evil or anything like this, but like my God, Stefan. Yeah, it seems like that was a pretty clear-cut case where he had an opportunity to just say what happened was despicable and horrible and and you know as a coach it saddens me instead of having to weigh in on the the ethics of taping goodbye coach k that is our show for today our producer this week is margaret kelly to listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out go to slate.com slash hang up and you can email us at hangup at slate.com And please subscribe to the show. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Be a pal. For Joel Anderson and Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Baby, and thanks for listening. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.